Hello, and thanks so much for joining the Invisible Americans podcast with Jeff Madrick and Carol Jenkins. We address the travesty of child poverty here. There are nearly 13 million children living in serious material deprivation in America, and we don't see them. They are our invisible Americans, and we plan to change that. A couple of words about us. The podcast is based on Jeff's book, Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty. He's an economics writer, author of seven, and co-author of another four books on the American economy. And Carol is an Emmy-winning journalist, activist, and author, most recently president of the ERA Coalition, working to amend the Constitution to include women. And we are longtime colleagues and friends. Today's guests on The Invisible Americans are New York Congressman Dan Goldman, here to talk about the first ever Dad's Caucus in Congress. He's a founding member and also a father of five young children. We also talk with Deborah Konigsberger, a New York City businesswoman who for nearly 30 years has supported children and women in a shelter for the unhoused. We begin with Congressman Goldman, who first entered the public arena as lead counsel in the first impeachment trial of former President Trump. He entered Congress in the 2022 election, winning the race for Lower Manhattan's 10th District. He joined California Representative Jimmy Gomez in this first ever Dad's Caucus to work on family-related issues, paid family leave, the cost of childcare, and the expanded child tax credit. Thank you so much, Congressman, for being with us today. Uh, we are delighted to hear all about the Dad's Caucus. Uh, you know, what a big smile that brought to everyone's face when they heard, when we all got the news that there would be a Dad's Caucus. Yeah, it's a, it's really been received very well. Uh, feels like should it should have um, not been such a, a big deal. Uh, frankly, because dads need to pick up the slack and take our fair share of responsibility for families. Uh, we are half of the parental unit and uh, need to be advocating for parents and families and children uh, around the country, and especially on, on some of the critical policy needs for families that at least from my perspective, uh, make a ton of sense, obviously for the families, for the children, but perhaps the most persuasive argument is also for the economy. And the the frustrating part that I see in, in pushing for programs like the child tax credit or paid family leave or uh, affordable child care more broadly is that it will promote career opportunities. It will allow parents to stay in their careers, not have to choose between child care and their careers, and will ultimately benefit the economy far more than any of these programs would cost. So I'm very proud to be a co-founder of the Dad's Caucus so that we can be out there advocating for families and children around the country. 
You have said, Congressman, congratulations on uh, winning your seat, first of all. But second, you have such a broad agenda of social issues. Uh, why did the child tax credit and child support stick out in your mind to the extent that a men's caucus was needed? Didn't the men do this before? Advocate for these programs, you mean, and policies? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. For sure, individuals did, but I think one of the things that we have found, and you know, part of this is uh, borne out by the fact that we're talking about the Dad's Caucus um, in a in a different way than we might be talking individually about any of these policies. And I think that the persuasion of a group is the we're greater than the the sum of our parts, and being able to. Um, put together a caucus that has set policy agenda uh, to promote a, a few policies that are really focused on families has an impact because all too often the, the spokespeople and those who push for these policies are mothers and women. And it's long past time that fathers and men start advocating for these families that are for these programs and policies that are so essential to families do you think that had there been a men's caucus the uh child tax credit would have um, 2021 would have been maintained is it possible very very hard to uh to use that hindsight um and try to figure out what might have had an impact or what might not have the actual data should certainly have been enough to continue the program without a formalized caucus to promote it. When child poverty is reduced by more than 40% by a simple tax credit as as occurred during the pandemic, the proof is in the pudding. It's, it's right there laid out for everyone to see. And it is incredibly frustrating for, for those of us who are fathers and who are advocating for families that some of my current colleagues, especially on the Republican side of the aisle, don't recognize the benefits to all Americans of programs like the child tax credit, especially. And uh, we're going to be working to uh, focus on some of the more persuasive arguments to try to get that back on track. We've had the, the honor of having uh, Congresswoman DeLauro from Connecticut, uh, who is about to reintroduce, we believe, the American Family Act, which talks about the child tax credit. What's most persuasive? I think the brushback that we hear about is the cash payments monthly to families, that everyone is eligible. What's most persuasive in your mind to change minds on the other side of the aisle? It was a great experiment to test those criticisms while it was in existence. And that is to say that we hear all the time from Republicans who like to slam these programs, that it's a handout, that it's not encouraging people to work. But what it proved to be is incredibly helpful for families. And I don't think that the data supports this idea that it would discourage people from trying to work. It helped them make ends meet so that they could spend more time, parents in particular, getting their families in order and being able to pursue education or professional opportunities that they might not have been able to do if they were much more focused on scrounging just to make 
you know, rent or get food or or whatever those needs are. So I certainly am, uh, understand the concern about discouraging people from working, but I, I don't think that the data bears that out. And Congresswoman DeLauro is leading the charge on this, and she's just been fabulous about it. As the former chair and current ranking member of the Appropriations Committee, nobody knows this stuff better than she does. So I've been very honored to be able to speak to her about this and start working with her on this and certainly follow her lead. The other complaint about those who are uh, opposed to a child tax credit, of course, as you know, is that the parents spend the money on their own needs and desires from alcohol and drugs to clothes and so forth. I don't think the evidence bears that out either. Do you run across that a lot? I know it's a favorite subject of Senator Manchin. Yeah, and it's it's frustrating. It's a similar anecdotal evidence that people use and extrapolate even when it's not proven out to be anything more than anecdotal. And I am certain that when you look at the breadth of people who receive the child tax credit, you will find that with well more than 95% used it for productive and important purposes. And the notion that all the people who receive it are, you know, just focused on drugs and alcohol has serious racist overtones and uh, I think is completely misplaced. Congressman, President Biden just issued an executive order about the care economy, which plays into our concern about the nearly 13 million children living in poverty in this country, that the absence of affordable and suitable child care is a crucial problem. Do you think that the executive order has enough teeth in it to make a difference? What's your view on that? I do. I think it can and will make a difference. Um, when you think about what families need and you think about the impact that affordable and available child care has, it is dramatic because it allows parents to stay in their jobs, to continue to pursue their careers, to have professional success and continue to earn more money. And it also provides uh, really good opportunities for children to get exposure and learning that can be very beneficial to, to their development. So it's a win-win. And I would add a third win, which is that it will ultimately help the economy. It will improve outcomes and it will almost certainly pay for itself and then more. And so I applaud the president for encouraging, if not requiring, companies, especially those who receive federal grants, to require them to provide child care. It is the right thing to do. It is a, the economically beneficial thing to do, and it will have a dramatic impact on parents, on children, and on our economy in a very constructive and productive way. The uh, evidence, as you well know, and as Carol and I discuss often, is that when child poverty is reduced, children are better at school, they're healthier, they go on to have jobs, they don't drop out of high school. All of this you were referring to either directly or indirectly. Why does that not have more impact with the opposition? Do they just not believe it? Is it a prejudice? I am incredibly frustrated at the short-sighted nature of my Republican colleagues who are so clearly more interested in 
helping their donors uh, and their supporters and organizations like the NRA than they are investing in their constituents. And this is not a blue or red issue. This, this is children all over the country who would benefit from these programs. And I think you put the nail on the head. And part of it is that we have to message and we need to get more data and we need to be able to aggressively promote that data. I've been involved in early childhood development for quite some time. And there's some data, but it's it's not as robust as we might like to show that the uh, follow-on impacts of early childhood education and early childhood development and how that leads to better outcomes and better preparation for kindergarten, which then improves math and English outcomes as you move forward. There's some data, but it's not, I don't think it's as robust as it could be. And I, I hope that there are folks who can continue to really invest in in that research, because I think that is ultimately persuasive. And it may just simply be that, that we have to figure out a way to go directly to the people in those red districts and that we can no longer count on them to get objective, proper, factual information and that we have to figure out as Democrats a way of reaching them, not through Fox News, not through the media, but through direct interaction. We uh, have, Congressman, the conflagration, if that is such a word, of the debt ceiling and a new budget being discussed. If you could uh, give us some clarity on where you see that progressing and what that means for children in the United States of America. Well, unfortunately, um, they are being talked about in the in the same conversation when they are very separate things. The debt ceiling is whether we pay the money that we've already committed to spend. The budget is what we will spend in the future. Those are two entirely different things. But what the Republicans are doing is they're using the threat of a default on our debt, which would be catastrophic for not only our economy, but the global economy, to try to extract um, spending cuts. Now, what we have seen over the last 30 years in particular is that Democrats' economic plans work much better than Republicans do, even though there's a lot more spending on Democratic plans than there is on uh, Republican plans, which generally cut. And what we have seen bear out is that trickle-down economics does not work and that democratic solutions of more targeted and thoughtful spending incentivizes development, economic development, and promotes economic benefits over the long run. And so there are sort of two separate arguments and two separate discussions that the Republicans are trying to lump into one. And I think that we need to see what the Republicans ultimately settle on in terms of what their counter proposal is to the president's budget, and then figure out a way to uh, move forward without having our country default on on our loans. Unfortunately, the way that the Republicans are going about this is that they insist on spending cuts rather than any generation of additional revenue, including through tax increases. They insist on maintaining the significant tax cuts for the wealthy who do not need the tax cuts in the same way that the middle and lower classes do. 
And they are going to continue to maintain that defense spending cannot be touched. And if they hold true to their newfound position that they won't touch Social Security and Medicare, what's left is very little of the actual budget. So if there are going to be meaningful cuts, it is going to slash the programs that families need, that children need. And I fear that if they are successful in any way, it will be catastrophic for lower and middle class families around the country. We, we simply cannot allow that to happen. That is what our position is. And we'll see what they propose. They have not laid out in any detail a proposal. They've introduced a, a new budget yesterday, well, at least a proposal. We'll see where that goes. Do you think they can be stopped by public opinion at all once we see their no, new proposal? Yes, I do. I, I think we will have to aggressively and, and persuasively message on it and get the word out to people. But I do think that a combination of the business community being understandably untrusting of the Republican Party and also uh, would be very adversely impacted by a default or even the threat of a default, as well as uh, an uprising from those who support and benefit from the programs from education to health care to to SNAP, to the list goes on, that will just be devastated. A, a quick question going back to the Dad's uh, Caucus as we uh, finish up. I know you have a busy schedule today, but a quick question about your five children uh, and the Dad's Caucus. Do they have any reaction to hearing about you engaging in this way? Well, their biggest reaction is, please don't make any dad jokes as part of the Dad's Caucus. But uh, I, I did see there was an article recently that I forwarded to the older ones and talked to my eight-year-old about, which says that dad jokes are actually a sign of being a good dad. So they looked at me and rolled their eyes and disagreed vehemently with it. You know, I think they appreciate that I'm out, out there advocating for families and for children. And, and frankly, it's, it's not just, you know, my children that I obviously think a lot about. It's, but it's, it's setting an example for my children. Four of my five kids are, are girls. And I want them to grow up expecting that men and their husbands will be co-equal and parents and participants in both raising the, the, their families and that they have equal opportunity to pursue professional careers. And I think it's important that we dads get out there and advocate for families and show that this is a, a joint effort between mothers and fathers to raise families and to take care of our children. It's a, a big evolutionary step. In, in some ways, it's, a, it's, it's been a long time coming. We've made a lot of improvements over, you know, since the 1950s, the data bears that out. But there's still a long way to go. I saw an article recently that even in, in households where each of the couple make about the same amount of money in uh, heterosexual couples, that the, the woman still bears more responsibility for household chores and child rearing. And so we certainly do need to uh, make sure that our equal opportunity for women uh, translates into the home as well and that we set those expectations. 
Well, Congressman, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I know that you have a, a lot to get accomplished, so we're going to release you. But we uh, thank you for your input and for the Dad's Caucus and everything else you've done for this uh, country and this democracy. Well, thank you. And it's uh, it's it's not only great to be with you, but it's uh, really terrific that you continue to focus on issues and, and get the word out. I am not only believe that this is good politics, uh, as they say, but it's really mostly good policy. And it will, if we can push forward with paid family leave, with universal and affordable child care, with child tax credit, uh, with incentives for families to be able to continue to in, pursue their careers, that that will benefit the economy and that will benefit everybody, not just within that family, but the broader society. And so we'll keep pushing that that argument. And thank you all for focusing so much on it. Congressman, thank you for uh, your broad and constructive agenda. There's a lot to do, as you know better than I. Yep, there's a lot to do, but that's what we were sent to Washington to do is uh, make sure that we're not only advocating for families, but we're looking at comprehensive uh, reproductive rights on gun safety, which is another issue that we didn't talk much about, but has uh, such a dramatic impact on our children. It's now the leading cause of death in our country, guns. It's uh, absolutely uh, atrocious. And these are all things that are very much at the top of my mind and the top of the Democratic caucus's mind. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Deborah Koenigsberger is a successful businesswoman in New York City. She owns an upscale designer shop in mid-Manhattan. Not far, though, from a shelter where women and children find themselves when they've lost their homes. 30 years ago, she started the Hearts of Gold nonprofit to provide all kinds of support for these women and children, which includes a thrift shop that provides not only financial support, but training in retailing for mothers. Deborah, thanks so much for being with us today. I heard you on Mayor Adams' podcast, and I said, great, she can come on the Invisible Americans podcast next. Yes, love it, love it. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I, I should say that since Jeff and I are both former WNBC TV people that we first met when you opened your shop, and it might have been almost 30 years ago. No, it's 35 years. 35 years ago, and I did a story on your great shop and great success there. And I'm surprised to find out that the nonprofit that you started, you've been doing that for almost 30 years. Yeah, 28 years. This year will be 29 years. Yeah, absolutely. Hearts of Gold. Hearts of Gold. And if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to that, being able to to seeing women who are unhoused and their children and saying, I can do something about that, as opposed to many people who just say that's the way the world goes. I think that, you know, the problem of homelessness is it's so misunderstood by a lot of people. I was motivated and inspired by Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder basically inspires most of the things that are good in my life because I I live to the lyrics of his songs. And so I went to, in 1994, basically it's a trifecta, three things happened. Concert Stevie Wonder where I listened every night to his new album that he released called Conversation Peace. And the song that was the motivator was Take the Time Out. 
Take the time out to touch someone, reach your arms out and love someone. Be a king or some homeless one. We are one underneath the sun. You know, I, I'm an immigrant child. I came here as a child from Jamaica when I was 11 years old. So I'm a city girl. And everything that's happening on these city streets, I see, right? Because you can't help but, unless you really don't want to, which is another thing. But uh, I had my business on 23rd Street, right off 5th Avenue. I lived on Madison between 32nd and 33rd. Um, my park for my kids was Madison Square Park, which was back then a drug-infested crazy place, which is now the most gorgeous, you know, it's on the visitor's must-see tourist site. Probably thanks to you and your presence, your family's I was a pioneer when nobody else wanted to rent these retail spaces. So the importance of that is that cross that park to get to work every day. And I would stop with my boys, you know, push them in the swings, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Stevie's song happens in the park. There's a young woman, as I find out later, she's 19 years old, her daughter's three, and she's sleeping in the park on the earth, on the hard earth. And I have no understanding of this because, you know, I, I grew up, I guess I must have been a little bit sheltered because I didn't know shelters was a thing. I didn't know what a shelter was. I didn't, you know, I never saw homeless people. I grew up in the Bronx. Everybody had a house. You live in this community. I went to Catholic school. I walked to school. It was just never something I saw until I moved to the city. And it was way back then. It was a lot less too. It was in the early 80s. All of a sudden, I'm like faced with this person. I'm a young mother. I am going to take my children with me to work and then we're going to go home to shelter, to home where we have food and furnishings and love and everything that we need. And this girl is sleeping in the park. And so I, you know, I just asked her what her story was. She basically said that she had been molested in the shelter and she wasn't going back into shelter. But it was such a jarring thing for me to, to realize because in my world, in my culture, in my community, there is no world in which I would ever end up on a park bench or a park dirt or anywhere outside in the elements, there's an aunt, there's a grandmother, there's a cousin, there's a couch, there's something that is inside and sheltered. So that was hard to understand and digest. The other thing is Bobby Brown. So I met Bobby, we were both at the same resort when both her middle son and my older son were babies. And we just happened to start up a conversation. She mentioned that she was a makeup artist, she was trying to get launched. I told her, of course, I was a stylist. I grew up in business, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so she says, you know, well, maybe we can do something together. She says, I'm hoping when I get back to New York, something's going to break for me. Cut to six months later, she's in Bergdorf Goodman, and there she went. <laughs> um, but she came, visited my store, and we talked about, she asked me to do um, a seminar with her. And what she had been doing prior to her big launch was going to this shelter, providing product and teaching these women, you know, what to do with themselves, how to put themselves together and giving them product. So she said, well, why don't you come do a thing with me? You'll talk to them about what to wear to, you know, go out and be presentable. And I will do my, my makeup thing. And so we did that together. And she had um, a beauty team and, you know, we all went in and it was a great event. And that's how I discovered that shelter was a thing, but not only was it a thing, it wasn't a my backyard thing. So I live at 32nd. This shelter, it turns out, is on 28th between Madison and 5th, and my store is on 24th Street. So, you know, the universe was shouting, you know. Um, and I thought, wow, okay. So when I go to this shelter, I find out that there are moms and kids who live in this shelter. And I hear about, you know, how you get to a shelter and, you know, domestic violence and all the unfortunate things that happen in people's lives that end up, you know, putting them in these positions where they have no other option. So... I kind of do that and then I walk away and 
I'm hearing Stevie every day and Bobby did another thing at the shelter. And I am like thinking, you know, there's this girl in the park. About two weeks after meeting this young woman, she disappeared. I never saw her again, but she lives inside of my soul and she motivates me every day. And I believe and know that she made it somehow. Her and her little girl made it out there somewhere and they're not still facing such dire hardship. Yeah. And again, Deborah, for Jeff and, and me, the question is, what happened to that three-year-old girl concentrating on child poverty? This is such a great story, Deborah, in terms of, of being so completely struck by what you saw, a mother and her child. Uh, you have so much energy and you do so many things. I can't quite understand them all. Could you explain what Heart of Gold is and what Thrifty Hog is? Yes. So um, the reason I have so much energy is because I'm an immigrant and that's what we do. We have to have seven jobs, otherwise we're not legit. So I'm a legit immigrant. Um, Hearts of Gold is a 28-year-old nonprofit that supports homeless moms and their kids in shelters. And we do that through programming and we use the thrifty hog, hog being Hearts of Gold, as a means to give the mom job training experience. And also for us to have another way of raising funds to support the charity and the work of the charity. So um, Hearts of Gold, we adopt shelters. We adopt shelters that house this population, moms and kids, and we offer them our portfolio of programs. And they always say yes, because of course they don't have resources. And um, and then we you know we run with with what it is that we do. I will add that the Thrifty Hog is um, it's a resale store. We sell men's and women's um, clothing and accessories. We also sell some small decor items, and we do some houseware and some bric-a-brac. It's a classic thrift store, but very incredibly well curated and beautifully appointed. And you don't think you're in a thrift store when you walk in there. And that's just the kind of environment I wanted for the moms to work in, so we created one. Where is that located? Um, it's on 25th Street, 7 West 25th, between Broadway and 6th. As I'm sure you know, every day New York City publishes how many people are in New York City shelters. And the day uh, before we're doing this conversation, there are uh, 24,206 children in New York City shelters. That's 14,238 families. In in the work that you've been doing tirelessly, one on one, and training women, and you know, bringing toys and food and things for the kids, what is your sense of how we end this? Twenty almost twenty five thousand kids who spent last night, you know, in a New York City shelter somewhere. The saddest thing about um, having to answer this question is that it's no one's priority, so it doesn't end. And the only way it can end, and until and unless we actually treat this with the care and the respect it deserves, this number just will keep rising. And it has been rising. I mean, since I started this, it's it's kind of a depressing statistic, but you know, it's like the dike, right? I put my finger in this hole. I'm, you know, I've got this, it's a starfish story. I throw one back, but you know, so I save one today. And I always have to just remember that because if I don't, I get discouraged and I feel like you can't do it. You, there's no impact. It doesn't matter. What you do doesn't matter. And I can't adopt that mindset because it just really stops you. I think, you know, the people that we elect, that we put in power, the people that we vote for, the people who are in charge of our communities and making the big decisions um, need to really check themselves. And by that, I mean... You know, put yourself 
in someone's shoe. I think that every government official should be forced to spend a night in a shelter. You should have to go in at four and you can't leave till the next morning at nine o'clock, period. And you have to go through their nonsense security and abusiveness that they put the families through when you get into sign in and you have to go sleep in that room where the roaches are and you have to not have a burner to make food for yourself or your children and you have to sleep on that cot but god knows when was the last time anybody changed it or the mattress on it and you have to imagine your life as this but living the reality of that because it's just too easy to you know a lot of talk that has no results it's tough stuff, but it's tough stuff for the people who are living it. It is not tough stuff for these politicians and these chatterboxes who just walk around talking about it all day long. It's like, you need to create positive impact here. You need to check the programs that you put in place supposedly to help these families because it's, the system is a disaster. I have one North Star and my North Star is a mom who comes to me today and says, Ms. Deb, Thank you for that food. Thanks to you, my child is in college. Thanks to you, I got out and I have a job and I'm doing okay. You know, that mom, she just stays right in front of me. And I put on blinders because if I don't, I will stop because it's very hard to, to see all the rest falling apart around you all the time. And, and these systems that are put in place and these people who run these shelters and call themselves directors who don't care about these families. I deal with the workers in the shelters. You have people who work and who actually care, but they have no power and they have no support from the leaders. So it's just all a big mess and it needs to be untangled and somebody needs to really put some energy into it. There needs to be like a real coalition around how to stop, how to fix it. Let's go down the, the canal and plug the holes along the way one by one by one, but with cement so that they don't open up again. Let me ask you this, because I think most of us who have not visited such shelters or don't know kids who have been through it. When you started doing this, what is the thing, the procedure that shocked you most about these homeless shelters? So I remember going into the first time I went into one of these shelters and I saw where the moms and the kids were sleeping. Now, look, shelter is a beautiful thought, right? A place where they can be safe from domestic violence and craziness. Wonderful. I find that in a lot of these things, it's not a holistic thought. So they kind of go halfway and then the rest falls apart. So when I walked into this room and I saw where this mom was sleeping on the cot and then they had a little cot that pulled out from underneath, but the window was, it was a winter time and the window couldn't close. And it couldn't close because it had been painted over so many times. So it couldn't close and they were not allowed to bring in space heaters into the building because it wasn't wired for them. So this mom was telling me how, and they don't have blankets, right? So she has this thin little thing that she's covering herself in a childhood at night. And I just remember thinking, so basically a handyman, and I have bribed many supers in my years. I have gone to build this and I've said, I don't care what else is broken in this, but come on, I have $50 for you. Scrape the paint, fix the window, make the, th you know, drain the, the thing so that the radiator works. And it just, it's life transforming those little things, right? But the shocking thing for me is that, but wait, there's a director here. There's a program services person. When you tell them that your window can't close, so, and you don't have enough heat at night, like, what are they saying to you? And, you know, the mom's like, they don't care. They don't care. They told me the window's broken, so, and they don't have another room to put me in. The inhumanity of that is what shocked me the most. And I've seen it repeated time and again over these many years, sadly. 
Jeff and I started this podcast, you know, he wrote the book on Invisible Americans, the children living in poverty that, as you say, nobody cares about. Nobody knows that they're there or if they know that they're there, that's someone else's problem. You know, I think you're right. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, almost 13 million children, you know, who face food and shelter insecurity. And Lord knows what else in the system of, of poverty. So that's why we're doing this. And you are the, you know, just the perfect example of just do it, right? So how do we how do we help you do what, what you're doing since you seem to have a clear path? You know, resources is everything. Fortunately, I'm a well-connected person. So I'm able to, I bring everything to bear. You know, a mom calls me, I'm going to find somebody to help me figure out how to help her with her situation. But you need to be able to scale that, right? So that these there's a channel that these people can go to that actually gets some results. I fought for two years to get a woman and her three children out of a roach infested. When I tell you that I went to her apartment and roach were teeming out of her dining table, I fought and the government was paying that guy upwards of $3,000 a month rent to run this slum that he had this woman living in where the ceiling had fallen in. Like I fought for two years to try to get her out of that apartment. And the system, the program that paid her rent wouldn't come see the apartment. They approved that apartment for her to live in and they wouldn't go see it and do anything about it. At a certain point, you need uh, the magic bullet, right? The silver bullet is to be able to get somebody on the phone and go, you need to come see this now. And you need to stop paying this rent yesterday. And you need to make this landlord do the right thing by this person. But how to help me do the work is just acknowledging that the work needs to be done. And I am really desperately trying to figure out how to get the resources at hand to these families who need it so that they know that help is out there. That one of the problems. One of the problems is that. So we try to get our message through the, the shelter wall, if you will, to let these families know that we are there and, and happy to support in any way we can. Of course, resources are not endless. So we fundraise all the time and we're always telling people, you have $5, give it to us because I learned from my immigrant mother how to turn $5 to $15. And I do that every day, twice a day. And um, no donation is too small. So the three T's that most nonprofits live by, we need talent, treasure, and time. So your time, sometimes we run the thrift store, we um, we need donations that as well, clothing and all the items that we sell, because that, of course, helps us to keep paying these moms and, and giving them job training skills. But we also need these volunteers to come in and help us sort merchandise. Like there's inventory and we need to tag them to get on the floor. We need support in communities where you can say to someone, you know, a mom who's having a hard time today. Hey, Carol, I have a mom who lives, you know, not far from me. Do you think you could grab coffee with her? She's just having a tough day. I, I remember one day I called a, a mom and she was crying so hard. And I was like, what's going on? And she said, she just left her kids with her neighbor. And she said goodbye to them. And she said, and I'm, I was going to kill myself. I'm off to kill myself. She said, that day you called me at that moment, I left my kids, I was going to kill myself. And something in what I said to her just made her understand that what she was going to do was going to forever end the life of her two daughters that her being gone was not the answer for them. You know, she thought they might have it better, this person would help. But she was so um, at the end of her everything. Um, and understanding her story made me understand how you get there. But I want Hearts of Gold's work to penetrate these shelters and these programs. And I want to have government entities behind it saying that, you know, because we'll call the directors of shelters and go, hey, we have this to do. And they go, yeah, no, we don't have staff for that. Okay, but I don't need yourself. I just need to come in. I'll bring in the food. I'll do the seminar. I'll meet with the moms. 
I will give them, you know, a one hour lunch and learn seminar where they can actually learn some skills and, and do something that will break up their whatever. But the shelters have become so protective because they don't want you in there because they don't want to see how bad it is. So, you know, you, you can't get in. I get in because I know everybody now, basically. And I, you know, I've been doing this long enough. But if we can just have a system more of transparency, you know, where help can be gotten to these families who need it in different ways. My trying to structure Hearts of Gold so it can be that vehicle, it takes not only a village, it takes a city, it takes a country, it takes a whole lot of people. A village used to be when we had one problem. We have 13 million problems. You need a continent to make this better. And all of these people out there who are hearing this and and, and caring about how they can help in their community, they become a part of that continent of help. So, you know, I say to everyone, whether you connect with Hearts of Gold or any other entity out there, there are gazillions of small nonprofits out there in the world trying to have impact, have positive impact. Your neighbor might need you to buy her milk because she's elderly and she can't go down to the thing today. You can check on her, knock on her door and see if she's okay. There's so many ways to be humane. You can just do, it, it sounds overwhelming because it is overwhelming. But you don't have to be overwhelmed. My One of my favorite things to say is when a bucket is empty and you put in a drop, you never know if your drop is the one that starts the full or the one that overflows it. But you can be sure your drop counts because without every drop, that bucket will never fill. So without all of our hearts and our souls invested in wanting something better for another human being, it's hard to change that. But I believe in the human spirit. I believe that people are innately good and that they want to help and they just don't know how. We just want to thank you so much for your for your work and for sharing your thoughts on this. And, you know, you'll you'll be seeing us uh, at the Hearts of Gold uh, and we hope many, many, many other people to help out. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you. And know that we're moving. Um, we are going to be moving in about two months, but we're staying on the block. But we're going bigger and we're going to hope to do, you know, more work and hire more moms. So keep watching out for the Thrifty Hog because, you know, we're there. And go online and join our mailing list and we can send you the invitation to the grand openings. Such a pleasure speaking to you both. Thank you for, you know, inviting me. And and I hope that um, there was, you know, something came out of this. That There was a lot, a lot came out of that. Thank you so much, Deborah. History will judge a nation's decency in various ways. One of them will surely be the well-being of all its children. American neglect of its poor children is both inexplicable and deplorable. By basic measures, it has the highest child poverty rate among rich nations in the world. A generation of careful academic research has shown how damaging this has been to children's cognition, health, nutrition, and future wages. In 2021, Congress and the president adopted an enlightened program that expanded the child tax credit and made it available to almost all children, no matter their race, ethnicity, or how little their parents earned. The results were stunning, cutting the poverty rate by half. But Congress refused to renew the program. In coming months, this podcast will examine the future of the child tax credit and other key policies to protect children from the destructiveness of poverty. We are dedicated to restoring a bright and optimistic future for all children in this land long celebrated for equal opportunity. Our appreciation to our guests, Congressman Dan Goldman, and Deborah Konigsberger of the Hearts of Gold nonprofit for their work on behalf of children in poverty. And thanks so much to you for listening. 
You can find the full transcript, the show notes, guest bios, and research at our website, theinvisibleamericans.com. And coming soon, our blog and newsletter. That's www.theinvisibleamericans.com.